Hey guys, it's Michael and Serena here. Welcome to the recap. As you know, we've been doing our weekly recaps in video form, but this week is a little different as we'll be delivering the information to you in the style of a podcast. So feel free to take a listen as you get stuff done around the house or even on your way to school. Let's jump right into it. So the first course we'll be exploring is tort. And this week we did the topic of defamation. Now to truly understand defamation, you first have to consider what is a defamatory statement. A defamatory statement is one in which a person is lowered in the estimation of right-thinking members of society generally, where a person is exposed to hatred or contempt of ridicule, It's a statement that causes other persons to shun or avoid a person. And a defamatory statement discredits a person in his trade, profession, or calling, or to damage a person's credit. Now that we know what a defamatory statement is, what must the claimant prove? The claimant should prove, firstly, that the words complained of were defamatory. Now, we would get that from Cassidy and Daily Mirror Newspapers Limited. They also have to prove that they referred to the claimant. We find this in the case of Gary and Bullen. And then lastly, they have to prove that they were published. And this is in Hood and Hood. So the claimant must prove the statements were defamatory. They referred to the claimant and that they were published. We also have to consider defenses to defamation. We have four major defenses. The first being justification or truth. And we find this exemplified in the case of Alexander and Northeastern Railway. We also have fair comment, which has five requirements, being that it must be of opinion, not fact. The comment must have been based on true facts. The comment must have been honestly made. The comment must not have been actuated by malice. It must be a matter of public interest as well. And we find this in British Guyana rice marketing board we also have the defense of absolute privilege and qualified privilege and we can also explore the reynolds privilege in particular which is found in reynolds and times newspaper limited now we're going to move to our second course public international law the topic for this week was use of force international law prohibits the use of force and this is found in article 24 except, however, in certain circumstances. One, being in self-defense, which is found in Article 51, and secondly, to restore international peace and security, which is found in Chapter 7. Instances of use of force that we've seen in our world today include 9-11, Russia versus Ukraine, Israel versus Hamas, and the USA versus Grenada. Despite the prohibition of use of force by the UN, there have been numerous breaches of such. So the question now comes back at us. Is international law really law? Hawkish describes countries who favor war as war hawks and, are, and, they, and that they are the opposite of doves or dovish. Right, Michael Ann. And our third course that we'll be exploring is real property. The topic we explored this week is called equitable interests. The first subtopic being nature of equitable interest. Now, equitable interests would include the rights which equity intervened to protect, and they were not countenanced by the common law. They arose from the obvious wrongs which are endured by the king's subjects as a result of the unconscionable insistence on the strict legal rights of their opponents. 
Secondly, we're going to take a look at equitable interest versus legal interest. First thing to note is the technical meaning of the word notice. An equitable owner is therefore not in as strong as a position as a legal owner, for his interest can be defeated by the single individual called the bona fide purchaser for short. But the courts of equity construed this doctrine of bona fide purchaser so strictly that it is hard for one to qualify as a bona fide purchaser so as to avail oneself of this exception and thereby defeat the interest of the equitable owner. Secondly, statutory notice. A statute may even declare that registration of instrument or interest constitutes actual notice of such instrument in so far as it creates or affects any interest to all persons and for all purposes connected with the land affected. Lastly, we have tracing. An equitable interest is more robust than an ordinary right in persona, such as a contractual right. For an equitable owner is endowed with a right of tracing. This is a remedy which entitles a claimant to recover a property belonging to him which is in the hands of another person in an identifiable form. Now we've said so much, but we have still yet explored the peculiar weaknesses of equitable interest. Now the first point under this is sale by a third person. One who has a right in rem can hardly be divested of his ownership except by his own act. He can lose his title only where he himself disposes of it or is a party to the transfer or conveyance. Another weakness is tacking. Prudence dictates that one should never leave a legal estate outstanding. That is, he should go the whole hog of conveyancing and fulfill all the common law requirements for the acquisition of a legal estate. Equity has great respect for legal rights. We also have words of limitation being another weakness. Generally, the words of limitation rule applied in the creation of equitable freehold estates. It is also observed in the enforcement of executed as distinguished from exit executory trusts. Equity did not, however, adhere to the technical rules of words of limitation, where such rule was found to have been informed by purely feudal considerations. An example of this would be the rule in Shelley's case, which was not applied to an executory trust, if its application would defeat the clear intention of the settler. Now, finally, we would have no tenures in equity. This is another weakness. Equitable interests are free in general from the incidents of tenure. And that would be it. Lastly, we have everybody's favorite course, contract. This week's topic was illegality. The doctrine is founded on the principles of policy. One, to deter persons from entering into contracts that undermine the law. This follows the ex causa rule, to be honest guys, I can't pronounce it. A person should not be able to benefit from their own wrongdoing is essentially what the Latin term means. Secondly, to uphold the integrity of the courts. The court cannot be seen enforcing contracts that undermine the very law it was established to interpret and apply. Lastly or thirdly, a lesser consideration but a matter of policy nonetheless is the desirability to bring an illegal state of affairs to an end. Now we also must consider that illegality may arise in two dominant scenarios. The first is where an object and purpose of the contract is illegal. Now, an example of this would be perfectly exemplified in a hot topic in Jamaican society today. Hot, 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 hot. Hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be Sir Philip Powell's case. In this case, the contract involved Leoda Bradshaw, 
where she allegedly promised to pay a hitman a certain sum to kill Philip Paulwell's daughter and her mother. On the face of it, it might look like there's a contract, because we know a contract is an offer which was accepted and consideration provided, and in this case it would be the money paid. However, the object of the contract was to commit a criminal offence, murder, so therefore the contract itself is illegal and void. Another situation in which illegality may arise is where the contract is legal, but the way in which it is performed is not. And you can see examples of cases with contracts contrary to this statute on worksheets. And where is that worksheet? BLE. <laughs> so lastly, we're going to look at the effects of illegality. And we know that the effects of illegality is that it will render a contract unenforceable. Except, however, in the case of severance, severance, sorry, where the illegality is cut out. And when that contract is un- unenforceable, it simply means that the court will not order specific performance. This can also take the form of recoverability of money slash property transferred, and this may not be possible in very specific circumstances. We have an important case to note, and that's the case of Patel v. Mirza. If a lawyer recoverability would be contrary to public policy or disproportionate, the court will not allow such recoverability. Now, Sir was kind enough to give us some paragraphs to note in the case, but we're going to switch it up a bit. I'm going to read out the paragraphs to you guys that you need to know, but my God, you need to know the style. And we're going to look at concert them, and then I read out credit, and you have to catch it fast, and I'm going to catch it fast. So, are we ready, Serena? Yeah, we're ready. We're ready. So, these are the paragraphs to note out of this case. 99. 100, 116, 146, 210, 182. I'll read it just another time. I'm kind of like, you know, 99, 100, 116, 146, 210, and 182. Please pay special attention to these paragraphs in the case. Thank you so much for that, Michael. And that concludes the main points from all the lectures that took place this week. We do hope you guys enjoyed and we want to give a special shout out to the course representatives who went above and above and beyond to gather this comprehensive information and another shout out to the biggest and the baddest second year committee oh. president, the one and only Ashley Ann Collins. Can we get some noise? Woo! <laughs> we hope you guys enjoyed this. See you next week. Bye. Bye.